0: Welcome back for a new episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is your host, Chris Sims, with a special format for today's show. Before we get into that, big shout out to our Patreon supporters. Go Dig a Hole is an independent, listener-supported podcast with a mission to build a more inclusive archaeology for people like you. We're super close to our second support goal, which means we can grow the Go Dig a Hole platform. Our next objective is to pay for transcription services to make these episodes accessible to the hearing impaired and... We are almost there. If you're in Portland, Oregon on Saturday, June 1st, come to Portland State University for the annual Archaeology Roadshow. It's a really great public archaeology event that's family-friendly and open to anyone interested in archaeology throughout the region. Our co-host, Katie Tipton, will be there with a booth for her public archaeology work. So pop by and say hi. Also, if you're in eastern Oregon the following Saturday, June 8th, the Archaeology Roadshow will be in Burns, Oregon for our friends on the east side of the Cascades. This episode features a discussion moderated by Maxime Lamoureux saint who you'll remember from episode 25, Ancient Politics in the Present. Max recently got his PhD, so big congrats to you, Max. This panel at the recent meeting of the Society for American Archaeology focused on comparative approaches to Maya archaeology. The panel discusses complexity and comparative approaches to understanding the politics of the past, specifically in the Maya region, but this is a valuable approach for addressing complexity and politics of the past elsewhere, too. The discussants here were Arthur Demarest, Keith Epic, Rachel Horowitz, Patricia McEnany, David Mixter, Luis Moro, Olivia Navarro-Farr, Matt Saunders, Evan Parker, Whitaker Schroeder, and Brent Woodfill. This is a special episode recorded at the request of the panelists and with the permission of the SAA. We at Go, Go Hole are very grateful for the opportunity to present this discussion to a wider audience. So I hope you'll enjoy.
1: perspectives, of course primarily archeological perspectives. The participants, uh, um, just read out loud, are uh, Arthur Demarest, Keith Epic, Rachel Horowitz, Maximilian lamour Patricia McEnany, David Mixter, Luis Muro, Olivia Navarrofar, Evan Parker, Matt Saunders, Whit Schroeder, and Brent Woodfield. Um, the idea in assembling this group is to assemble people from different uh, areas in the Maya world, of different places in uh, our careers and also to invite uh, someone who works in the Moche area, the Greece, to provide an outsider's perspective. And also Matt Saunders, who actually uh, works not only in the Maya world, but also in the medieval world, in Spain, uh, in the Roman world, in Portugal, and in the classical Greek world in uh, Greece. So... 1st So we have to So we have to be able to kind of provide us some nice uh, perspective. And of course, uh, we all have some uh, ideas... Uh, practices of, of making comparative uh, work. So today, um, we're gonna focus on four fields to just structure the, the talk. The first one is called complexity, but it's really kind of a catch phrase for talking about all kinds of different things. It's gonna let's be a bit more methodological. Then we're gonna go, maybe focus on a few case studies that we maybe personally like. And then we're gonna sort of shift gears and talk more uh, from a thematic perspective and talk about uh, how we can use uh, collaborative uh, purposes or collaborative processes to uh, study ancient Maya politics and then ancient Maya economy. So I'm gonna now turn this off so we focus on talking. Yeah, that was the idea. Yeah. All right. (laughs) So uh, I'm gonna also do a little introduction and then we can start and we can, we can just proceed by going ahead and talking and taking turns. We have more or less 10 minutes each to talk. A little less, maybe nine minutes each because we started late. So you can sort of think about that as a time frame because then you can use it all at once or go in shorter. Um, we all have to be a bit responsible if we want to be democratic. different, right? No, probably not. All right, so. Um, This morning I was walking here and I saw a sentence written on the wall, which was, uh, every obstacle is an opportunity. And in some ways, I think this summarizes why we use comparative approaches in the Maya world. Because there are gaps in our understanding of the ancient Maya. And every time we encounter a gap, we search for an answer outside. Um, Sometimes we we use uh, history, sometimes we use ethnography, sometimes we use uh, comparative studies that go across cultures. And I think we are most probably rigorous in New York Zinia and uh, when we use material from Mesoamerica or from the Maya world, such as something some derid- derivative of the direct historical method, uh, we are we tend to be most uh, explicit about the methods we use. However, when we use cross-cultural, we are not always as uh, pragmatic or not always as specific in the methods we use. So this is. Basically, why we, I was asking the question, where, where do we go? So should we continue this way or should we maybe change things, perhaps be a little more explicit or rigorous in this approach? And um, two things, two, two, two ideas that I'd like us to play with today that I talked a bit about uh, in the email we, we've been exchanging is how we use it and why we use it, and also what we use it for. So there's sort of a microscopic approach to comparative studies. Uh, someone who may be studying, for example, paper-making or blade-making or corbel vaulted architecture, things that are more focused on technology and more microscopic in scale. And then there are more macroscopic approaches to comparative studies, people studying things more structurally speaking, perhaps something like urbanism or geopolitical landscapes or perhaps long durée cycles of political growth, collapse, and rebirth. And so these are the two kind of ends of the spectrum we use the coverage studies for, and I think we probably, all our discussions will fit within uh, that at some point. And two of the major dangers of these approaches, I think, for the microscopic scale is the cherry-picking aspect of it, to so just t- take something and use it because it's convenient and not really explain why. And then the uh, something we've been talking with Arthur a bit is uh, from a microscopic problem is to be to get lost in models or to lose perspective and forget uh, and forget to be more reflexive in our approach. We we, we tend to perhaps be uh, too immersed in our own economic system perhaps and projecting aspect of it into, into the past that aren't really this uh, really uh, valid. So I'm gonna let everyone go and uh, I would invite anyone to. Proceed
2: to talk about yeah. one of my nine minutes. Yeah. Sure, I mean, it was one of my nine minutes, <laughs> just real quick. I always have too much to say, and this is too big. I really am grateful to, to have a discussion. I know Max got this idea. and They don't have enough discussion with a group like this instead of presenting individual things. Also, doing it collectively, we have very weak peer review in our field. There's too few of us. We know each other. And I'm working in strategic management with like 40,000 subscriptions to stuff. That's OK, because we've we, have to be collegial. You know, we research grant. This is a great opportunity to be critical, and everything moves forward by being critical. And so, I kind of think we've made great advances, but we're in really bad shape in terms of our theoretical paradigms, our ceramic chronology, and a lot of other things. And so, I have a seven-page single-spaced Arthur handout because uh, I won't be able to say anything. But then, uh, after you hate me, uh, you'll be able to read this, and there will be a quiz. Did you tell? No, no. Thank you. But I I think that we need to focus not so much on reaching out for new models, but just getting our shit together in terms of logic. We're really fucking up uh, That's a colloquial summary of this, (laughs) but I mean, great advances, great wonderful things being squandered by um, logical problems, bad ceramic chronology, and uh, research design problems, lack of lab work, uh, a lot of things, they're all here and afterwards we can have, go to a bar and you can all be me. meal. <laughs> That's going to be 10 a.m. do so we'll the
1: <laughs> Not after this. <laughs> we'll be drinking during this. All mm-hmm. right. Uh, anyone else want to pick up from there?
3: Well, I always thought, <clears throat> or uh, kind of the impression I always got of, of minus in general is that we tended to be kind of insular or that we were uh, kind of <clears throat> navel-gazing to some extent in, in uh, only digging Maya sites, only conceiving of Maya political systems on Maya terms, and uh, I, I would hope that you know, bringing in more comparative approaches is one way to kind of surmount that, or at least bring some fresh theoretical light. And, and I and I think that that might go hand in hand with this kind of methodological rigor that that <clears throat> you see, Arthur. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I think that. I mean, I'm not sure exactly the specifics of what you're talking about there, Arthur, in your nine-page, single-space uh, uh, thing. Um, I'd like to hear very much. Like to hear more about that. But I think the uh, the point that Evan brought up, this sort of notion of Maya exceptionalism, and that we often feel that there's really not anything that will compare with Maya archaeology, is is uh, d- does constrain us at times. At at the same time, there. There, there have to be uh, constraints on the kinds of comparisons that we make, but I think also it depends on what we're comparing. So for instance, if we're looking at Um, the relationship between people and their environment and landscapes, I I, I think it's entirely legitimate to look at uh, farming systems in Southeast Asia as a similar kind of environment. And so, and that might be, uh, there might be a very intricate way in which people are mapping onto their environment that may may or may not be reflected in their political system. Uh, And so I think that we also uh, need to think about Uh, what kind of comparisons we want to make and why and um, I guess I'm a little bit I tend more towards the kind of uh, unconstrained unbound kind of thing and that that when you make comparison with something else you always learn something and sometimes you learn things that you didn't expect to learn and so it can be a very expansive process so um, I I think there's nothing at all wrong with comparison I would champion it.
5: I, uh, one thing that I think even beyond just like the methodological and the data aspect is that we tend to uh, assume this is not just with the Maya but this is with all other cultures we basically assume that they are gringos and silly costumes and so we, we kind of think that I, I, I'm, I'm down like the ontological rabbit hole I've been there for about a year and a half so I apologize but like this idea that Everyone is basically a crypto capitalist, and that everyone has gone through the Enlightenment and can actually look at um, like economics separately <coughs> from politics or perspectives of personhood. Uh, like the, the, a lot of the places that we work in, are actually considered like living persons, and we can kind of like we kind of acknowledge that to a certain extent, where we talk about well, okay, there are like rights of termination and rights of dedication. And ritual defacement and caches, but we don't actually take them seriously and go beyond. Basically, saying, well, they're basically gringos who have a couple of other little rituals that they end up doing, and so by, like, even just like before, we can uh, comparing other cultures is great, and other time periods is great, but if we're basically still just. Um, Trying to isolate specific aspects of culture and not actually really checking our basic biases and assumptions, then we're not really doing a service to them.
4: You're talking about the intellectual baggage we bring to analysis. Yes, but,
5: uh, by the way, you've always
4: been
2: down the ontological (laughs) range. From the first time I met you, you were way down there. I grew cheese. Anyway, no, but we have to be careful. Look, Concepts, theories—they're polythetic sets of individual elements, which are on relative scales. I'm working now with strategic management people. It's a quantifiable discipline. I also, you know, I also teach logic and rhetoric and philosophy, and I can't take it anymore because we don't have to make those choices. We take little pieces, you know, and we never had a problem with Marx. Or Durkheim, they were analyzing capitalist societies. Bordeaux and doing them. You, you don't have to take the mindset and then have it challenge the the ontology and the, the nature of the ritual. You take pieces and you use the pieces that are appropriate. There's the danger of cherry-picking. The solution to that is rigorous peer review, which we just can't do with the nature of the field. David? Right, and you know, I think yeah, in,
6: in some ways this is, this this kind of methodological discussion that you're making, point you're making, Arthur, you know, is is back to the age old um, our, uh, debate about analogy and archaeology. This is this is not a new conversation, um, and you know, it comes down to this kind of question of you know if we're going to use different kinds of analogical sources in making arguments, which I think you know uh, is appropriate. I'm, I'm Brent. I'm I'm not quite as far as you are down the methodological rabbit hole. But I, I, know where you're coming. I understand where you're coming from. But you know, we still have to figure out how to fill in, fill in gaps. Um, but um, you know, it's, it, I, I agree. It's about taking the pieces that are useful and then building, you know, well-explained arguments for why those comparisons are relevant, effectively, and and making the sort of the 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 relevance-building part of the the practice of making these kinds of arguments. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, you know, Allison
7: Wiley's idea of cabling attacking.
4: Mm-hmm. What
7: would you consider to be a good comparative study? Just any time. Like An example of <clears throat> this is the way to do it.
1: Well, if I can just say one thing. Something that I thought was very interesting recently is someone who proceeds from a structural perspective to make a, 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 a parallel. And we're, I, I think I'm going to talk we might end up talking a little bit more about this more when we talk about politics, but uh, the, the recent book by uh, Salins and Graeber on kings looks at basically um, divine kingship or stranger kingship as sort of a structure uh, that organizes a lot of society. Who are the authors again? Salins and Graeber. And uh, they do it, they start from the, the structure, and they, they, they start from a model that is, Well, defined from a historical perspective, and then basically extrapolate and recognize this model in a lot of different societies. And starting Mm -hmm. from the structural point, actually, I think is a helpful way to do it.
8: I'm going to ask a question about the peer review system that was brought up um, and how fraught it is. Can you, what are the, what are the, Challenges there in peer review is just everybody is overwhelmed. oh, it's, it's, it's
2: just you don't. I mean, I'm working now in strategic management, and it we have we just got the we just applied and got five percent. We're thrilled we got the right after a 10 page proposal to submit to the journal, and then we have a five percent chance of getting it. And it's 40,000 people in the organization, and they don't know each other. And so, it, you know, when I'm a discussant, or David's a discussant, you know, we, we have to do this. I mean, there's somebody who's really worked on something, and the good stuff, it's a graduate student, it's a young colleague, and there are serious problems, but the, you know, you don't be too harsh. With me, I kind of drop to the side. It's such a small field, and we're all colleagues, and so it's difficult to have hard you. The other thing is... It's you know, we can talk about comparisons and analogies. We've lost the path of structural thinking, you know, of logical debate, that where you have polythetic sets with individual elements and you move forward with logical arguments and and then people critique your logic and your data and they do so and they can do so rather harshly and it keeps everything clean. It also makes you aware of the gaps in our in our data set, in methodology we're talking about all kinds of things that you can't talk about without a fine-grained chronology. With gender, uh, so artifact distribution. 90% of it is just bullshit because we can't control the chronology that well. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm being negative. I think we're making incredible breakthroughs. And when I work with these people in strategic management, the first thing they look at is like, oh, you guys are like sloppy shit with your applicant, but they are awed by what we get out of broken rocks and you know fern sherds and just a, what the fuck, how did you do that? And so we've got this incredible data set, but we've got to get back into the groove in terms of the approach of science, which is which is built on quantifiable sciences, even if you can't quantify the logic of it. you well, my handout, it's hard to do his job is controlling it. This is not, not a good job. So where are we on, on,
8: are we on some kind of uh, shift in the pendulum to back towards systems thinking? And I'm asking, I'm teaching a theory class right now for undergraduates, and I'm kind of in the middle of the part where we talk about post-processualism and, and sort of moving in that direction, kind of 80s and 90s is where we are right now. So I'm thinking about this from the perspective of teaching undergraduates, does does this set of questions about comparative approaches and I agree that I think we can be really insular. But also, I mean, so is question, I guess part one is that is there a pendulum shift back towards systems thinking? Not that it's ever completely gone away or anything. And two, is there just a, a, a practical reason here as to why we are insular? I mean, we're all at various stages of career. We all have, you know, different kinds of positions and we've we've worked very rigorously to get where we are it's really difficult practically to be kind of embracing all of one's literature and then dip outside and be in that literature. And if you're in a teaching position of some capacity or type, you're mentoring a array of students and there's a lot of things happening, right, practically speaking, in life that make it sort of, I think, difficult to be on top of or in command of. Various
2: literatures.
8: Mm-hmm. Um, so I see a practical, yeah. uh, not necessarily scholarly, or, you know, I think everybody's doing their level best, you know, but uh, there's it's a lot habitus
2: of. Habitus and agency. <laughs> uh, Trish is, you know, the, the tendency for exceptionalism is because we're indoctrinated in this literature and then we're expected to break out of it. So you're right. Mm-hmm. Which
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an interesting point. Though, to to ask the question, how do you teach about uh, to undergrads and maybe uh, graduate students in order to try to pave the way to maybe a more uh, a better approach to conversation? But I, I would like to ask Matt because Matt actually teaches K twelve students. Mm. Well, mm. welcome. 10 through 12. 10 10 through
9: 10. 12. I don't teach
0: <laughs> <laughs> Big difference. Yeah, you also do that. Yeah.
9: So
2: you're having yeah. a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
9: Pretty much. I lean on all of these guys <laughs> so. uh, But I did want to sort of chime in as the weirdo in the bunch. Um, you know, I think one of the things we must take into consideration is, what is the end result? Who's the audience? Uh, because you know Max and I just co-authored this book with some of my students, and one of the things that was so valuable, and this is totally off-topic of the Maya, but we're comparing, um, for example, Portugal, uh, the landscape of Portugal, and we use comparison of US states, right? Because that's something that they can imagine, they can visualize that. Like the Atlantic Ocean puts a blur of where the lines of latitude are. Um, and in this case, I, I think in some of these, what your audience is, if its it just for us? Or is it for yeah. those outside of here? That yeah, makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And, and with my conferences, that's one of the first thing I, I, I will say, my other Playa, Maya the Yeah. Commercial. So I'll say, I want your new stuff. I want really exciting stuff. But at the same time, I have people coming who are electricians. They have no clue. Yeah. Like if you, you sit in 80% of the, the talks here. Um, so I think that's the question. Like, do you want, you know, I, I think there's probably value in <laughs> having it very insular. I think there's also value in, Broadening that, so uh, you know, all of my fun, all of the funding we get is not within this room. Right. <laughs> it's with folks who are excited, <laughs> and want to hear about you know some of these things. But you must make those comparisons. It, it makes it more tangible, uh, uh, at least in my experience. Um,
1: yeah, Rachel be first.
9: Okay, yeah, go for sure.
10: yeah, well, I want to actually follow up about what both Matt and Olivia just said about, you know, since we are we're sort of all imbued in this Maya literature, for me, the way that I think about comparing and going outside of it is that I'm a lithicist. Mm-hmm. And that is what my background is in, and that's what it was before it was the Maya. And so for me, I've made those comparative approaches through the material mm-hmm. aspect because. There is not, I mean, sure, if you're a ceramicist, you can learn about why ceramics all day, but there's not as much data and literature about it And our methods come from elsewhere. So I think some of it is inherent in the nature of what we do, is mm-hmm. you cannot be as insular depending on what we're trying to study. So it's, it goes back to what is it that we are studying, as well as who our audience is and who we're speaking to. So I try not to not to just speak to the mining skills. Sometimes you have to think about the other lithic scholars as well. That's what we can
2: think you're right. You're more embedded in science. Mm-hmm. I, I've been really uh, influenced back that way by working with French lithicists, because mm-hmm. they do science. Something we read about. Yeah, I mean one of
6: the points that I made to Max when he was saying this thing up in the fall that that relates to this and I think I think that um, you know the, the exactly that this is exactly the flip side of the coin about us using cultural comparisons is you know, thinking about what what are the goals of my archaeology like are we you know and i don't think it has to be the same for everyone, but you know the the, the you know how how are we contributing back to the anthropological project are we taking what we're doing mm-hmm. and building it into you know, bigger models and questions, um, as opposed to just being receivers of models that we maybe are using in ontologically, you know, sometimes ontologically inappropriate kinds of ways to build structures about what the Maya are doing. You know, we have this, we do have an incredibly rich set of data about the Maya, and I think that's what makes it so overwhelming. Is there is just so much, and there's plenty of space for people to sort of continue to enrich in that data set, but. Um, you know, I also think that there's that, that that it's it's important to continue to figure out. You know, how are we talking to our colleagues in our departments as well? And then how can we build use those um, those ideas to um, um, I don't know to, to, to use this robust data set about the Maya to contribute outwards. I guess I think this is a perfect time to ask Luis uh, maybe for his input. No. So.
11: Oh uh, uh, yeah. Do you, do you want to start spicing in a nutshell what you do? Yeah. Exactly. And just, just like a general comment, because I'm here to provide, as Max uh, said, just an outside perspective on on where to go when we actually try to build cross-temporal, cross-cultural uh, comparative um, um, uh, models. Um, basically, uh, it's very interesting because, despite uh, the, the different historical trajectories, historical, you know, material culture, and, and also different. Uh, The differences in the environments where, for example, the Moche and the Maya developed. Because I'm here basically to provide my own experience in Andean archaeology because I've been working on the Moche area. It's incredible, actually, that that it's intriguing the parallels between these two societies in terms of cultural development. And I think we, Andean scholars, we are also looking for, you know... uh, um, case studies to compare the moche, why the moche developed in, in these very specific ways with, uh, by following these specific cultural trajectories. And I think that we also have to, I mean, we pre-Columbian, pre-Columbian archaeologists have to uh, find more uh, space of convergence because actually the Indian region and the Mesoamerican region are very similar in terms of cultural development. We have these, for example, Chavin, Olmec, uh, development, and then we have the, the classic Maya with the Moche, and then we have the Stegas and the Incas. There is a lot of these spaces, the spaces of convergence. And actually, we are not really creating these spaces for of convergence, where we can just talk and share about interest, methodologies, yeah. and theoretical approaches. So I think that is, I mean, I mean it's, it's interesting that I'm here. I'm just the Andeanist. I, I also hear these kind of concerns when I participate in conferences you know, full of, archaeo- of Andean archaeologists. Uh, it's just uh, very interesting that I'm here like hearing exactly the same comments, exactly <laughs> yeah. the same concerns, the same identity the, crisis, the same uh, identity uh, the same Christ. methodological <laughs> issues, um, um, yeah, so I think that those spaces uh, need to be created um, you know, in order to, to, to foster more, more cross-cultural and cross-temporal um, comparative models.
1: Well, I think also perhaps the format of conferences, even the SAAs, uh, I mean it, it, it is not that rare to invite one person from the outside to, as a discussant I had to talk at the end of the paper, but um, you can only say so much in 15 minutes about uh, 14 papers. And so uh, that I think perhaps the more interactive uh, dimension of a forum could be a good place to, to be a little more uh, Individual. This is
2: all they should have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. yeah. And
1: then, and then that's. Um, so I, I think at this point, uh, if that's okay with everyone, we I think we've set up the table pretty well, and uh, I'd like to perhaps uh, move a little uh, closer to the concept of comparative case studies, and to bring one topic uh, which I, I was hoping uh, no one was going to talk about. That it's kind of uh, something I like is the, is words. That's my note is words. We. we that basically boils down to the words we use, and that's what case studies are, uh, cross-cultural case studies, and even uh, or uh, um, ethnographic parallels or ethnohistorical parallels are very important because we use a specific set of vocabulary words when we define different things in the Maya world, and they use different sets of words outside the Maya world. Recently, in a peer review, uh, in a peer review article, I used the word government to talk about um, the the royal court of a site, a Maya site, and the author said, justify the use of the word government, and to me, that was very curious, Uh, but then I I put myself back 10 years ago, and 10 years ago, I probably would not have used the word government, and I have been using this word, and since I have been using it now, I've grown very familiar with using this term, but I know some people are not familiar, or not comfortable to use the term government, so, and we, we, we use this word because it comes from our own perspective, and now, I think we all use different words that we borrow from different areas. And I think that's a good maybe point of departure to try to talk about which case studies do you consider useful and why in order to help us fill in the gaps from our heuristic knowledge of the looking at me uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking at you? I'm looking, so I have words Carla. Yeah, looking at That's an
12: interesting point because this, this similar thing happened to me. Um, I was going through some revisions on my dissertation, which I'm still doing. But um, I was using words like <coughs> kingdom, territory, all these sorts of things. And I had a non minist you know, who was giving me revisions. And he was saying, you have to define these terms. You have to say why you're choosing to use these terms. And when we use the word kingdom, we're already using an analogy, we're already using comparative study. Um, government's another example. So, I think that's a really interesting um, point. I mean, I was um, I was going down kind of a rabbit hole yesterday, also, um, can you- <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> I was going down a, a rabbit hole yesterday, as well maybe a different one, um, but I was looking um, just to kind of get back to this idea of how we can assess the utility of some of these comparative studies, um, I was looking back at this, you know, feudal model, um, and um, I was sort of looking at uh, sort of where, you know, what medieval historians think of this model now, and they've they've essentially rejected it now because it's been applied to so many different parts of the world. So I just I'd want to caution people, you know, when we use these comparative studies they do lose some of their explanatory power if we apply them to to everything, right? So just another sort of cautionary thing to think about. Even like
5: uh, some words that we all, like that that everyone here probably takes for granted. I remember like I was taken back on a recent publication where I was talking about like the which are like my kind of the like supernatural owners of land that are manifested in geographic features. But like one of the reviewers, wanted me to clarify whether I thought that the Tsultaka was a god or not. And the term god or deity, like, one of my Japanese friends, like, when she grew up, uh, she actually was guilted by her grandmother. That for every grain of rice that she did not eat, she was there, like she was wasting the thousand, 10,000 gods that lived in this grain of rice, and like talking about Yahweh and ten thousand <laughs> gods living in a grain of rice, it is a useless term. Um, the idea of places as like locations, as opposed to again these sultakas, which are actually like geographic idiosyncrasies imbued with personhood. They're not places; they are people. But even using words like sacred place or God is like us imposing our ideas upon what is actually going on. I'm but just the, going to continue. The concern about, about
2: words that you're talking about, you're talking about, you're talking about, it comes up in peer review. In philosophy, you learned a long time ago, you can't, a, a word, it has, it's a polyphatic, is that what many meanings? Yeah. You, they try and try to have a word or a phrase to say something. It always takes a paragraph to explain exactly what you mean. So if somebody says, oh, you can't use that word, or, you can't use any word. Words are generalizations, and they're polythetic sets, and you have to say which elements you mean. But if, but uh, there is this pressure to have the right word. Mm-hmm. And really, people should read the philosophy of language, because they had, you know, Wittgenstein went crazy. They had nervous breakdowns trying to do this. It can't happen. You, you just can't do it. So, we should not be so concerned about that. We should be concerned about the explanation that goes with the word.
5: Yeah. And, but I think, like, what, and, I, and I don't want to, like, take up more than my minute here, but I completely agree with you. I think we just, a lot of times, we assume that all of these words are instantly translatable into other cultures. Um, and even just the terminology and framework we use is as important for translation as the actual, like, language we're writing in. Um, so
3: kind of on, on this track I was thinking a lot about the, the way in which we you know, we're talking about framing my archaeology right? Like, and, and you know, how we're framing my archaeology using certain words um, and I was thinking all of us probably got our start in my archaeology looking at classic period stuff it's because it's what's on top most of the time uh, it's everywhere, it's the densest Um, didn't know much about the pre-classic and so forth or even weren't as concerned with the post-classic and hence whenever we start thinking about comparative bases for the Maya we always start with classic era stuff uh, looking at states and other regions of the world, how they develop and so forth and this uh, kind of framing from a comparative point I think has uh, Somewhat stagnated us in, in terms of thinking about earlier periods of time for Maya development. Hence, we conceive of, yeah. and Patricia's talked about this with Khashoggi, for example, that we see the Maya eventually developing into the classic civilization that they are, and that the pre classic is just a precursor to this, setting it up, mm-hmm. um, and that we, we know what, what it culminates in, right? And hence, uh, what what I think it requires then is a, is a reframing, and this can go for the classic period too, of uh, what what do we expect the Maya to be or, or what kind of society are they? So when, whenever I'm thinking about say pre-classic Maya society, um, I, I think I have to drop any pretense that it's going to turn into the classic Maya, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that opens up a, a few new uh, directions that you can look in terms of comparative studies. So no longer do I have to think of, okay, it's gonna develop into a state. Instead, I can say, well, what happens, you know, what, what led, say, for the Maya to surmount limiting mechanisms that, that ends up putting, uh, uh, you know, that ends up limiting power for somebody to eventually become a king or chief or, or whatever. Words again, right? Um, and, uh, Yes I, I think that, that that's already like one way to kind of open this up and say, okay well, let's not think necessarily of how, say states in Southeast Asia develop, but rather you know, okay, what kind of limiting mechanisms did early political entities in Southeast Asia, how did they surmount those those you know those uh, limits to power um,
8: I think there's similar um, thinking about this idea of gaps earlier. For me, um, maybe in this, in a way analogous to what you just described, Evan, is the late to terminal Classic period. What's happening there? And you know, this is a long-held conversation about this idea of collapse and what is what does it look like? And let's you know, questioning that. I mean, the book on questioning collapse, right? This idea of looking more closely at the the processes and and it's very challenging given the ceramic chronology difficulties that we see in that period. So framing that up and, and putting some scaffolding around structurally what's happening. And I do think there's some really exciting work um, from, from Copan and other places about you know chain migration and movements, um, what's happening actually to families and how are families moving in and out of landscapes that we see ultimately being abandoned. But we sort of, again, the hindsight 2020 idea that we, we know this is coming, we see this and we sort of project out from there, but there's a lot going on in the ground, one generation to the next. I think about Charlotte Abneau's work on ceramics, which I think is really trying to answer some of these questions and think generationally about ceramic use and production, and and again, frame, build scaffolding around where we don't necessarily have it quite so tightly, to think about how are people, how are families, how are units moving in this time, and, and how are they surviving and adapting, and changing dramatically. Um, how do we, what do we, do we use the word government to describe in general the characterization of change, the dramatic changes we see politically? In this period of repositioning, you know, I think there's so much there, truly gap-wise to know and to fill in. Um, Are we limiting ourselves though, given how we see things already, and the the tendencies we have as aggregate, in the aggregate, as archaeologists, as a community of archaeologists, that we perhaps make it very difficult for (coughs) new ideas to come out? (laughs) You know, you said the way to go forward, Arthur, is to you know, I guess kind of screw up and fight and, 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 and talk and, and, and then through these errors or mistakes we can kind of move forward. You, if you can't have a piece of, of your own ideas in peer review come out to print because there's so much, I don't agree with this word, I don't agree, then how do we get the thing out to sort of then have it exist and be argued with, right? I mean that's so frustrating to to just try to get something out and, and have it kind of not even be able to pass through. To sit out there, it's fine, critique is great, you know, I welcome it, but I just, you know, to, to, to have it out there is, is and then it lives in the world and people can continue to fight with the idea as much as they want, you know, but... It's such a difficult spot. I think that late to terminal, I'm like I'm using all my nine minutes, I'm sorry. You know, transition. Uh, You're
2: not allowed to use the term terminal classic, you know that.
8: Right, late <laughs> <laughs> I forbid <laughs> if <it>, you have not <laughs> heard.
2: I, I forbid points <laughs> off. I get
4: it, I, I, I know. I,
1: I'm wondering if we could look at the ceramics and ask you yes. about how uh, well, to define these, these um, transitions.
7: Um, mm-hmm. um, at El Quilaca, we're spoiled, um, like La is spoiled, like Canquen is spoiled, because we've got really good ceramic analogies. Um, so for, for us, when we sit here and go, oh, the Maya world needs to include uh, better ceramic analogies uh, like we do, um, we, are, we, are, we are kind of buffing ourselves up and then blowing our own horn. Um, but in terms of, um, I mean two things come to mind very quickly. One is in terms of uh, transitions and terminal classics. And I think we need to get away from terms like early classic or late classic. Our chronologies are so good at this point, we might as well just start using calendar dates. Um, And we can keep these kind of big broad terms uh, that are only sort of vaguely anchored to certain centuries. Uh, But the chronologies have gotten so good at this point, uh, or or can get, so have the capacity to get so good at this point, uh, there's nothing wrong with just using straight up calendar dates. one of the one of the big finds we had last year at the lab is we have what essentially it amounts to an El Pruacas is a early 11th century occupation. Uh, so I mean we're pushing the end of the site, you know, past 1018. Uh I don't know how, how big it is, but but we've got people there with um, uh, essentially what are post classic ceramics, uh, but I'm not using the term post classic. I'm using early 11th century. Right. Uh, <clears throat> but there's no reason we can't extend that same argument to the early classic or the late classic. And we get around this horrible term pre classic or, um, or terminal classic. Um, one of my manuscripts that's kind of out there in the vapor, um, which I think a couple of us have manuscripts like that, <laughs> um, <clears throat> one of the things I do is I, I, I kind of spend about half a page railing on the very the term pre classic. I don't like it. Um, I suggest prior classic. You'll um, never get a good one. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's always gonna require it's, it's, an explanation. It's completely pointless, um, but that doesn't mean I, I can't try. Um, and the second thing that occurs to me is that in terms of uh, the t- t- types of families and social units that Olivia's talking about, I mean, what do we have on the ground? We have house mounds, we have rain structures, we have ceramic scatters, we have middens, we have palaces, whatever. We can't people that landscape without a comparative approach. Uh, we can we can just kind of say, oh, social unit. This is a social unit. The social unit is doing this. But unless we actually say what that social unit is, um, it, it's 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 completely pointless. It's it's a, it's so flavorless. And so it's so flavorless. It's so inexact. Um, that uh, attempting to speak to a, a, an outsider about this social unit or that social unit, you're just gonna get a blank face. On the other hand, you start dropping terms like extended family, and they they know exactly what that is. But then you have to say, well, what? how are you defining extended family? Is it a lineage? Is it a house? Uh, is it a kin group? Is it a kindred? Um, and then you've got to start bringing in comparative analogies. Um, so, you have to use comparative analogies. The, the default comparative analogy uh, tends to be colonial era, it tends to be contact period stuff, it tends to be uh, modern stuff. And uh, while it's easy to criticize that approach, it's, to some extent, it's the best analogy we uh, have. And people who sit there and say, no, you can't use Yvonne Vogt. I'm sorry, I'm gonna harp on that forever. And you're referring to like, um, colonial stuff in terms of just the, like, Maya. Yeah, or, or, or 20th century studies. Yeah, but but not um, outside the Maya one, area. Yeah, okay. uh, one of the one of the dumber peer reviews I've ever read uh, was a critique of one of my manuscripts that said, I'm not allowed to use a compare. I'm not allowed to use Yvonne Voigt's ethnographies to project back on the classic period. It's absolutely one of the dumbest things I've ever read. Uh, you're gonna ignore 50 years of ethnographic data. Um, and yeah, you can't use it unproblematically, but to say just you categorically can't just can't use it uh, just makes zero sense. But you sure. have to use pieces of it.
2: And you are absolutely right. You can't do any of this stuff without a good chronology. Yeah. But you're being very nice. You have a good chronology, Takeshi. We have a good chronology. Takeshi has a good chronology. To be honest, most of the chronologies suck at these sites, and that's why they're still using those terms. You know which are big periods in which you can't understand what's going on in that housebound because you're looking at layered 200 years of different things.
1: I wonder if uh, Tricia, would you be interested in commenting a, 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 on the social unit aspect and the analogies?
4: Well, I thought the the question of how do we people the landscape? How do we people this landscape? And and for different time periods? If we try to, I think it's a very uh, admirable goal to try to break away from. Uh, the developmental sequence that is very put does put us into very teleological postures mm-hmm. when we're trying to explain what's happening, and um, it forces it forces us into a way of thinking. So I think trying to break outside of that um, is is really admirable. I, I'm, I'm not so sure that we all. I guess I am agreeing with Arthur here that I, you know, I'm not sure we all have the uh, the ceramic sequences or our radiocarbon data. Or any other kind of absolute or relative dating technique, and in, in order to be able to just pin, you know, what we're excavating uh, in uh, chronometric time, and just disband with these kind of BS developmental terms that are so loaded, you know. And in um, there's a, a new evil coming out. Uh, from Cambridge Press um, that Norm Yaffe is the editor of, and it's on the concept of fragility. And his in his opening introduction, his is entitled "No term is neutral" or "No term, no no term is innocent." You know, and this idea that you know these words that we use are so evocative of certain times and places and ways of doing things, and some of them are very linked to developmental sequences. And so we uh, we just have to be really careful with it. And, exactly. And, and I think sometimes um, when a reviewer asks for a clarification of a term and how a particular term is being used, um, that's not necessarily a bad thing to take a paragraph and really um, Talk about that term and why you're using that term, and how it might, you know, have resonance in other areas. And you know, maybe you don't intend that, or you know, I, I think that we probably do too much of just throwing terms out and then yes. thinking that they have universal um, uh, salience and, and that it's very well understood what they mean. Yeah, um, at, the, at the SAA's
7: last year, I watched uh, two very distinguished scholars uh, engage in a slap fight. About uh, proto-classic versus terminal pre-classic, um, and I'm sitting there watching this, and I'm going, just, just use dates, just, just, just if you use have, dates if you
4: have them. Uh, but, but, if, but if you getting back no to the, the peopleing the landscape, yeah. Peopling the landscape, and I think that um, you know, yesterday in, in the session for Steve Houston, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, I was talking about the royal courts and that concept and how powerful that's been as an organizer for the Maya region and thinking about the peopling of those royal courts and what that sort of allowed us to do once we accepted the idea, okay, that these would be royal courts. And and that was an old concept that was out there in the literature um, and the question of, could it be applied to the Maya area? And I think a consensus developed that yes, it can be. And that all of the other logical postulates that go along with that, like the idea that you would have an aristocratic um, uh, ruling segment of society—it wasn't a class, wasn't it a class? We can argue about that. But um, so we—we we, I think that was that was a real kind of organizational breakthrough in the way we we think about those and people that landscape. Unfortunately, it, it, the royal courts are only a very small part yeah. of that landscape, yeah, and that left a lot of other places. Um, Not conceptually organized, and so, and we still don't know. I mean, we we have terms like, oh, these, this was a non-elite place. (laughs) So you got this residual category for everybody else, Mm -hmm. and it didn't really help us to move forward and understand that. And we still are trying to develop. A way of thinking about that landscape, peopling that landscape, that is really <clears throat> integrative, you know, in terms of those, um, the royal courts and then all the sustaining populations and the little towns and hamlets in between yeah. the royal courts and all that. I mean, we, we, We're just not doing a very good job of that, as Arthur pointed out.
7: Well, we, we still don't have a agreed-on working model of the basic social
5: organization. Uh, in a really truly integrative yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I, like I, I, I'm one of the people who has that manuscript of yours, but like yeah. the, the site that I work at, the chronology is not great because the preservation is awful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to actually get a chronology, but there is no evidence that there was actually like a lowland style Kahula Hau, even though it is a lowland site. And so, like, trying to think of how the, how this was actually related to places up in the highlands, looking at different models for extended family, is something that I'm spending a lot of time. And the Transversal is a great place to do that because yeah. every site we dig there,
2: they got a different power structure. Yeah, it's just like whatever the hell you feel. So you really it makes you really try to look at it and not use. The how model mm. So I think at this point we're sort of circling around
1: a, a thing that is kind of we've talked about differences in chronology and how it's uh, uh, how we may look at. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but like early, late, middle pre classes. <laughs> 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 so uh, eight hundred BC, BC communities, eight uh, hundred BC communities, and having a hard and having a hard time comparing them to uh, eight hundred AD communities or to. Uh, 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 hundred AD communities because they're different entities, but also we just talked about transversals. We talked about Ivan Zibok, who worked in the Tzotzil highlands of Chiapas. Um, we have people who work in, in northern Yucatan. Uh, we have people who work in, uh, we talked about Copan, where most people were probably non-Mayan. Uh, yeah, we all call ourselves Mayanists. And so I wonder if an aspect of, of, of tackling the comparative uh, uh, pe- paradigm would be to maybe even think about comparative approaches within the Maya world because and and, and if you talk in, if in in French and in Spanish, you say les Maya, los Mayas. Um, in, in English, you say the Maya, and there's no s. And I think that really brings in this mass, this this mass now brings a problem with it. Um, so and and also so there's differences chronologically, differences in, 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 in space. So I, and and I would like maybe to ask. Rachel, uh, a question, because from a lithic's perspective, how easy is it to differentiate uh, these different uh, eras? How is it easy to differentiate these different periods and, and these different spaces?
10: So, I mean, if we're thinking chronologically versus spatially, it's, I mean, spatially, we don't, we see variability in what types of tools people are producing based on their access to materials. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the northern Yucatan, or sort of north coast, there's not Shirt materials and so people are using really crappy limestone Um, and uh, as some of you know my uh, big pet peeve recently has been that other people use limestone too uh, to make tools (laughs) even in shirt rich areas Um, so thinking about how we use those different materials um, we think about them in terms of based on access but there's also some functional differences so regionally we do see broad differences within the Maya area about how People are making and using tools, and I was actually talking to Olivia about this uh, before we started. That I, most of my research has been in Western Belize, where there's a plethora of church materials, and we see a lot of informal tools. Versus, I've started working with some of the El uh, Perlocal materials and things from La Corona, where we start to see uh, in the Paten region, uh, where we start to see larger quantities of formal tools, like greater quantities of projectile points and formal bifaces. And less evidence of production, at least in the context that we have at the moment. Um, that's related to ag- issues of accessibility, but perhaps also the involvement of different sort of segments of the community in that way. Um, I think, in terms of your question about chronology, that that's where we're really lacking. Um, with the exception, sort of major exception of Kolha, um, there hasn't been a lot of discussion of how lithics change through time necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of obsidian procurement and use, certainly there has been in terms of how people get their obsidian. But who is making that obsidian, those tools, and how that sort of production activity is happening, is sort of less studied. Um, and it's hard because most of us work in sites that are from one time period or another. We don't necessarily have those broad chronological frameworks. and in terms of things like projectile point typologies. We just don't have that for the Maya area that we have. So, but all the other things about North America, we can um, do that. So it's there just haven't been those sorts of, sort of chronological things, I think. I've been thinking about doing regional comparisons. I think that's a good place to start, um, as you mentioned. Something we don't think about is that the variability within the Maya area
1: well. And From a linguistic perspective, we're getting more and more information. Even from classical inscriptions, we now, again, we can see uh, Mary Kate Kelly is doing this research for her dissertation trying to look at dialectical differences or linguistic differences in classic inscriptions and trying to be able to say, well, the the people who live in this area Spoke a different language. Mm-hmm. Yes, they use the same writing systems, but you can see in this writing system that they're speaking a different language. And when we talk of different languages, um, we talk—we can't talk to the same people. Um, they, and many of these people probably didn't, couldn't communicate with one another. And I'm just going to take a little tension here and sort of um, bring back, back the cross-cultural perspective. I think that what are the good analogies for the Maya world? Should we compare them to something uh, like? The Moche people, for example, who,
11: uh, if I'm not wrong, probably spoke the same language. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't have like a, such a great uh, written documents as you guys have. The uh, mm-hmm. uh, <coughs> thing that the Moche people spoke a, a language uh, called Muchik, uh, which actually is a dead language. We don't know anything actually about that. Uh, just like a few words that were translated, but by, by um, Colonial Spanish fathers, but besides that, we would have like actually much information and any written documents. Uh, actually, the Maya are considered, you know, the, the little people of the ancient Americans. We don't have that such a great record actually for reconstruct or or base uh, or, or, or do research based on, on linguistic differences. Um, but yeah, I mean the last uh Speaker, actually, I think that he died back in the 70s. The site side we have like more records of that. Right. So, our knowledge about ethnolinguistic relationships in the ancient Andean world is actually very, very limited. I mean, we only have just information of later periods, of course, and Quechua, and Aymara, and some other communities. Uh, they're basically in the central highland, but in, in the north coast, our knowledge about that is really, really limited. In, in the models that uh, um
1: Students of Moche uh, archaeology uh, use are all Moche people considered to have spoken the same language? Are they considered to have been able to interact amongst each other using uh, a Lingua Franca? So Is that something that you think about?
11: In Moche yeah, it, it's very it's very likely. Uh, but the other piece of information that is also very interesting is uh, uh, Jeff Quinter found a, a piece of an historical uh, an historical document in the in the Chicama Valley where he found like this words that were translated from Muchi to Kingdom, which is something that is has been interpreted as a, as a language of fishermen living in the north coast so now we know that probably uh, mochi when we speak about the mochi of course we are thinking about these uh, um, like cultural uh, ethnic group who developed on the north coast of Peru between mm-hmm. between the second and the ninth century after uh, after Christ but now now actually we're understanding of the, the socio-political organization of the Morche territory uh, no, is allowing us to, to, to think about it in a more fragmentary way. With probably not only uh, uh, people speaking Mucic, but probably all, all other ethnolinguistic groups inhabiting the same territory. Mm-hmm. Again, our knowledge of that is really limited. Uh, we just assume that people spoke Muchik. Uh, but based on, on Jeff Quilger's uh, finding, we now are just like a opening to the idea that probably other ethnolinguistic linguistic groups were also inhabited in the, the, north, uh, the north coast of Peru. Um.
3: And the, <coughs> uh, well, so, so Max, uh, in, in terms of thinking about that question of saying like which societies are good for comparative for, for Maya Mayanists, well, it's, it's wholly dependent upon where you're talking about in the Maya world, So, yeah, I I think Northern Yucatan is going to differ pretty substantially in some ways from, say, you know, Southern Guatemala Uh, and what time period you're talking about because there's absolutely no purpose for, for me to talk about. Say the Moche, if I'm talking about Middle Preclassic.
2: But <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, why um, do we have to middle, have a package deal on these analogies? I mean, that's not no, no, no. I mean, and you and, and pieces, I agree with you you Yeah. Pieces.
3: And so I mean, I, I can talk about say like monumental construction practices among the Moche, and maybe that is the same way that I can talk about monumental construction pal- uh, practices among the Maya Middle Preclassic Civil. Mm-hmm. All right. And and I and, and so yeah, you've got to you got to set it up right, you know. Um, um, but it, if we're just gonna talk about, you know, say the political practices of the classic period Maya, um, I, I think you're, you're looking for, you know, that, that's gonna be way different than say, okay, politics among middle Classic Maya, late Classic Maya, so on. So wh- where, do, where do you
1: get your, your comparative material for, for looking at the creation of communities in uh, the 1000 BC
3: uh, area? <laughs> Yeah, so this is this is where where it can get complicated because we, we don't have texts right, and uh, even iconography is is limited for the middle preclassical, middle preclassical and Maya, um, and and we tend to kind of be very fixated on you know uh, other cultures in formative Mesoamerica. Uh, so what what I you know some of the ones that I like to, to think about there's archaeological case studies, for example. So. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about archaic period mound builders in the southeastern US, mm-hmm. um, incredibly precocious people who came together perhaps in uh, a limited time frames to construct these huge mounds, questions surrounding whether or not there are status discrepancies within these societies, whether or not they can build these types of things with hierarchy, mm-hmm. and uh, say let's look, let's talk about Takeshi and 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 danielle's work at seibal saying okay are these earliest mound builders the degree to hierarchy is present okay well they're hunters and gatherers they're building these things is this an is is the southeastern archaic an appropriate analog for this um and 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 i and i would say yes with you know some important caveats right um so we can go archaeologically but then again uh you know, do we want to go ethnographic as well? So, can I talk about, say, uh, limiting mechanisms among Papua New Guinea society in the last two hundred years or so, looking at historical trajectories of big men societies, um, and, and how how favorably do those compare to the Maya, for example? And that's you know, again, um, raising this you know, the kind of issues. About ethnographic analogy and the history. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure that was one reason why that reviewer didn't like what you had to say, was because of, say, the, the history of colonialism and how that impacted the Maya and so forth. Um, and, <clears throat> I guess going back to the Kalahari debate, right? Saying, is it appropriate for me to, to use Papua New Guinean societies, these trans egalitarian societies, as a, a basis of comparison for a society that existed 800 BC? Um, and I and I think I think it's I think it's okay, I think. but with acknowledging you know these you say the impacts of colonialism and so forth of um, interactions with with other types of societies. Yeah.
2: But you know, both of you, you use pieces. You tell these people you're using pieces. You're not taking the whole and you not you don't have to take the whole thing, and then it disappears. I mean. In, in comparative analysis and strategic, they have a, a, a collection of many, many concepts, and they see this and that and the other, and they see these polythetic sets and how they're put together, and they see it all I mean, in non-Western societies, indigenous societies, and they don't have to, you know, they can do this in, individually, and so say, that's there, that's there, that's there, and they don't have to take this package deal, which is what upsets everybody, because this is different, that's different, how do use it, um, and they're right. You can't wholesale
7: do that. Well, if you, yeah,
4: if you, and I think that. Well, I'm just. Let me just give a, an example of that, um, Arthur. The um, and that also feeds into what you were saying, Luis, Is remember reading about uh, the chicra bags in the Andean region and the interpretation of these kind of net bags filled with rocks, is that communities would supply these as part of. An, um, their contribution to building something monumental and so um, and because of the incredible preservation in the Andean region you know you can you can actually still see the net or you know around these bags and so that you know led me to think then about well we're digging all this monumental architecture but we really have never really tried to figure out whether um, these structures were being built with uh, kind of more cooperative community labor or whether some other mechanism was in place. Although, you know, we do know that usually there's often some kind of bin structure that's filled in, in uh, Maya, uh, like especially pyramidal architecture, but we really haven't stopped to think about well, what does it... Are these different bins? Maybe referable to different communities, and so I think that that's sort of an example of where just reading outside of the Maya area, I, I started thinking about how how are we interpreting how these monumental structures are built, and can we get down to more of a community level and have ideas about uh, this as a as a as a practice that was perhaps voluntary, perhaps not, but, but, but that really involved the participation of many communities who left their mark on this structure.
11: Yeah I, couldn't that uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more actually with that, but on the other hand, the idea of analyzing at least that, that is something that has happened in archaeology, the correlation, correlation between monumentality and social complexity can be also very misleading because the idea of the huge and big and complex moche monuments has have been usually used for the uh, advocates of the you know the state model or organization for the Moche as a real proof that Moche was an estate. Uh, but actually that idea has been uh, put into question. Yeah. Now we know that, the, that these different monuments that externally they might appear like a, like a following the same architectural patterns, some same construction techniques. Now we know that it's actually quite the opposite because in, in spite of the fact that the façades and the decoration of these buildings can, can look like the same, they are really, really different in terms of organization, architectural uh, um, architectural design, uh, and so on. And now, actually, based on a very detailed study of these monuments, now we know that the Moche were way more different than what we originally thought. So this idea of the Moche as, as a hierarchical uh, political organization, I think I think is the, the one that has been most accepted by, by, by Moche scholars. Basically, based on the study, on the detailed study of monumental architecture, precisely, uh-huh which are huge, I don't know if you guys have in mind the Moche uh, Huacas and the Moche uh, monuments, they're just spectacular monuments, and Huaca de la Luna and Huaca del Sol, for example, in the Moche Valley, they are one of the largest uh, um, pre-Hispanic monuments in South America. Um, So yeah, I was just wanting wanting to ask. What about the earlier
4: material, Luis, the um, the material that um, is, pre-moche and is equally huge and monumental.
11: Uh, there is, I th- yeah, yeah, indeed, uh, the monumentality in the Andean region. Uh, I mean, we can just trace back the origins of these huge and, and spectacular monuments. I mean, but in the initial period or later ceramic mm-hmm. period, which is Caral, for example, mm-hmm. Caral shows an Carole. amazing yes. monumentality that. That is two thousand years before Christ. So monumentality actually seems to be a very uh, a a key pattern in the social and cultural development in in the Indian region. Mm -hmm. So Mocha is not unique in that sense. Um, uh, The Mocha monuments are unique in the decoration and this like uh, um, exaggeration exaggeration with uh, with with this monstrous, the picten, the facades of the most important Moche buildings, you know, and the, the bloody rituals that were also uh, carried out in, uh, in, in these buildings. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean.
4: And if I could, if you could just indulge me is one of the questions for the <laughs> while we have our Indianists in the room here. So what do you think about Chip Stanish's idea that those really early sites are not on they're not a developmental trajectory to classic period, that there's something else going on there and they're not sort of proto-kings in the making that it is a more cooperative kind of structure (laughs) that it's a, a I mean, lately I've been thinking a lot about political experimentation and how humans kind of experiment with different forms of getting along, and and that it was it was a form of experimentation that was very heavily vested in monumentality, but it was not in a we shouldn't be thinking about it in teleological terms that it was something that was a prelude to and then you know led to. Like
11: yeah, I think uh, Jim's Spanish idea about that are very thought-provoking uh, and he has been working basically on the, on the southern highland and all these huge monuments appear to have been organized around communities and family and, and family clans that is something that we can see in the archaeological record, the, the ancestral veneration seem to have uh, playing a key role That's in the crazy. construction of these huge monuments and Tiwanaku and all the pre Tiwanaku sites are actually a proof of that because in the center of these huge constructions and big plazas you have uh, these um, monolithic representations of probably ancestral beings so it seems that all the political and social organization and the, the development of monumental architecture seem to have been uh, uh, seem to have occurred around ancestral veneration. We're not, we're not speaking about state organization, We're yeah. speaking, you know, like community level organization with families, which are or family clans, groups that are fighting one to each mm-hmm. other for. Water resources, arable uh, land, and other resources—they are fighting with each other, and that is something perceivable in the archaeological record. That's exactly the same happening in the Moche area, where you have like sites, settlements, with protected by huge defensive walls. So they are constantly fighting. So yeah, I'm not responding. Do
2: you have? Do you you still have? (laughs) Do you still? uh, Do people still uh, agree with the idea that some of it is meta? You know, community-based, segmented areas of construction. Because you see, that's very interesting. Because you like uh, in in Angkor, places like that, you have these monumental constructions, and it's making merit. It's individual people making marriage. Here you have the community-based thing. And we always have this idea of the elite orchestrating Mm -hmm. this stuff through some kind of power. Uh, And of course, that's partly true, but this, this this, this relationship to community
11: units is fascinating. That's totally right. At you have the best evidence on it. Exactly. Not only archeologically, but also ethnographically. I mean, the, the Andean traditional communities are still organized around the mita work. You know, this community work not only for construction of monuments, but also for the maintenance of irrigation canals, for example. Uh, work in agricultural uh, lands as well. So yeah, this is something that you can still see now, I mean, in the way how, how Andean traditional, contemporary traditional Andean worlds uh, um, actually are organized in this way. Yeah. Okay, um,
1: now, is, would anyone want to contribute uh, something specifically about uh, the political organization, perhaps, of, of
7: different stages of, of Maya civilization, to I would. Okay. <clears throat> um, I mean, you can look back at the scholarship uh, of the 1960s uh, and 70s and into the 80s, and they loved analogies with Sub-Saharan Africa, and they loved analogies with Polynesian chieftains. <clears throat> so my question to you guys is, are those type of comparisons still appropriate or is pieces that pieces of them. Pieces of them. Pieces of
2: them. Yeah, but they didn't use pieces of them in the seventies. <laughs> no, but I mean no they didn't. But there are elements of Polynesian structure that you could see in certain periods in certain polities. And and again that's the other social sciences are, are doing that. Um, and, and that's I think that's this whole debate about do we have to have you know it have to be Maya. Uh, Ethno histories have to be just pieces. And then you don't, you don't have to worry about that. And you don't have to be beaten up over mm. it. I, I would have a question
1: for Matt. Because Matt, you collaborate with archaeologists uh, working in Greece in uh, work in the classical world, uh, with people who work in the medieval world in Spain, and people who work in the Roman imperial period in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do these people perceive the Maya? How do they uh, ask? What kinds of questions do they ask to you as a minus when they're trying to? to they take don't on? do
10: that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm currently trying to make something up. Um,
9: I'm not sure. I think there's uh, there's certainly a Um I certainly haven't had that particular uh, question. Um, you know, I, I think there's a great interest. I think that uh, for starters, the, the European archaeologists question why I want to be over there. I think that's a big one. Why do you want to be Uh, over there? Oh yeah, because they drool over what we are doing. It's just a classic case of you want what you don't have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which by the way, I totally encourage everyone to step outside of what you've done for 20 years, because it's refreshing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm not sure that they care. (laughs) They they don't care what I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they love the fact that the programs um, are operating, but <coughs> I, you know what? I, uh, know what I think they have a fascination, but they I need to be and, and Also, <laughs> if you've spoken to me very much, you know you're not going to get uh, a lot of academic response. <laughs> so, um,
10: so I have a colleague um, who studies Mycenaean, uh, work right outside of Mycenae, actually. I mm-hmm. mean, um, we are actually. She talked to my class recently, and so I actually was discussing with her a lot of the comparative issues between. Uh, Maya political organization and she says that she and her colleagues actually do really look to the Maya and of so the Maya as comparative um, studies. She's particularly interested in the sort of urban versus rural activity and how are those urban communities managing or involved in activities that are happening outside of those communities which are things that we're all interested in and that have been talked about in the Maya area. So I know that at least in that case she's they do sort of sometimes look to our research in a way that I don't know that a lot of us think about the uh, Simeon's very often.
2: Um, at least I don't. But um, we don't reach um, out. So. We, and that's where, where Matt's thing is, and, and I see David there who, who's published a popular book on collapse. We're involved right now in strate- with strategic management and the audience is you know, public policy people, government people. Uh, it's, a, it's having an impact because we're talking about collapse and they don't really believe it. Mm -hmm. Not that they don't believe in global warming, they don't really believe it can collapse. Mm -hmm. And we're starting Mm -hmm. to frighten them. Mm -hmm. And that feels good. good. (laughs)
9: Yeah, one, one thing that, you know, just we can feel good about ourselves is the fact that they haven't asked means they are also thinking of only themselves. So, yeah. you know, well, so it's not just the Mayanists. classical it's, But it's yeah. not,
4: that's not true because one of the funnest um, sessions I was ever at um, one t- one time when I went to the the annual AIA meeting in um, in San Diego and it was a Maya um, Mycenaean session and uh, it wasn't. And it's, I think, Maya Mycenaean, Maya Moche, I mean, in some ways, the similarities are more apparent than real, and uh, you have these kind of, this representational iconography that, you know, and you can kind of feel like you can see people from the past because they're painted on pottery or something. But well, but the kind of the funnest thing about the session was figuring out how they were different. And it's like, oh, how did they do that over there? Oh, yeah, okay, they did it differently, you know, in the Maya area. And so and that was really, um, you know, and that, and that was pretty informative. So I think sometimes reaching out uh, for comparative studies that, you know, the contrasts that emerge are, are mm. equally um, beneficial to us.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I have done a little bit of uh, comparative work with Mycenae, just to chime in, looking at sort of the organization of rural courts. But, and one thing that they're I was interested in, yeah, they're small they're sites. Very very and. and tiny. But if you look at the palace, what some of the interesting parallels there were is within palaces they have workshops. But instead of making uh, ceramic fancy ceramic vessels, they seem to be making chariots in there. And uh, so it's it's (laughs) kind of a different sort of of prestige item. Um, But they still maintain control over making specific technologies, and they seem to be feasting in those palaces. And they have kitchens, Mm -hmm. they have storage areas associated with the feasting areas, and they have uh, places where people are allowed to go come in, places where they're not. So there's definitely some interesting structural parallels, I think, to very Mm Agua Teca. Very Aguoteca, <laughs> yes, or La Corone. Um so, but I think there there is, there is some interesting parallels to be made. And, and when, when we compare uh, two pieces of art, yeah, there could be a lot of apparent similarities that don't mean much. But when we look at a structural level, I think we can still learn a lot from it. Um, so, um, I, one thing I would like to, to talk about, because that's my bit, even I would like mostly to hear what you think about it, is where I was going earlier by talking about the differences in, in, in language and perhaps political organization as well for for the entire uh, Maya landscape uh, throughout time, uh, and and from a linguistic perspective, we can probably think that this diversity increases as time goes on, Um, is thinking about uh, medieval Europe as a potential parallel, or medieval Africa, or medieval India, or medieval Japan, as these areas that are highly uh, balkanized, to use this term, um, where there are different entities kingdoms, to call, or principalities, or, or, or duchies, or counties, which are of different sizes and different strengths, and that are in constant state of flux, and constantly absorbing each other, and, 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 and playing and making alliances, and this whole idea of Game of Thrones, that that seems <laughs> to be going across the entire medieval uh, world. Um, and in terms of... of Time frame. Uh, I don't know if we can use a chronometric thing for that, but there's definitely a lot of that going on between perhaps 500 and 1580, or something like that. So I think there. Um, I, I'm, I wonder what is your, your, what are your thoughts on this, and how comfortable you, do you feel, or what are your objections with using parallels from the medieval world in and, and the divine?
2: You know what I'm going to say. Pieces. pieces of it. <laughs> why why, why you do you have? to are like a big box of skittles? Well, that's so. how in <laughs> sociology and strategic management they have these specific pieces. And it's there. This one's there. That one's not there.
7: And well, we one game. This, this one piece. I think that we can use from feudalistic societies is how power is negotiated between individuals, and I think we see that in the Maya region, especially in the Classic era. Is that it's not a, it's not an alliance between this city versus that city. It's the alliance between this guy mm-hmm. and that guy, yeah. or gal, I, whatever. Because <laughs> um, we've got all these queens too. Um, so I think that there are, and I think Adams wrote an article about this decades ago, uh, arguing for feudalistic analogies. And I think one of the things he was arguing, it could be mistaken. Um, is the, the individual connections, because that's one of the core systems of the feudalistic system, is that it's individuals making oaths towards other individuals. And yes, they might represent a polity, um, but they are not the polity. It's not a formal agreement between these two, these two corporate units like we see today. And indeed, we, we toss around emblem glyphs left and right, and you probably, you know, we, in fact, you do know more about this than I do, um, but most of our emblems just appear in bias parts of titles, don't they? Yeah. And uh, th- this might come
1: back to a bit to what uh, Quesada talks about too for 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 the post classic Maya world, where <coughs> states are not networks or they're not territorial control, but rather yeah. social yeah. control or or kinship kin kin control. So, yeah. what about geopolitical organization? Do you do you can you picture uh, the the classic Maya world as as a Medieval society.
2: I don't. Again, you know, I'm going to say but, but one thing that one thing in these things that we keep forgetting, and and, and but, it hurts collapse studies. They're networks.
10: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, you you, you can't release this and this and this and the variability. You know, that's why people have trouble with the collapse. It's a network there
1: so so I understand what you're saying. But for, for the benefit of of um, teaching to uh, undergraduates or even to, to ten to twelve. Uh, uh, in high school <laughs> which is um, it's really hard to, to teach them it's about a, the hardest. that's the hardest but it's, really hard it's to, the most important it's really hard to teach to, to teach them about these little skittles or little pieces of, of, of covered models so if, if you had to project an idea in their mind to try to uh, give them an understanding of what uh, the classic model or what the pre or the sorry the, what the there's nothing wrong with those terms. No, I know, no, I just, I, I, but so, so. If it's the, they're giving
6: me the grief. <laughs> no,
1: but what, what kind of analogies Sorry. are you But we, we have eventually to think of a of, of, of big picture to some degree, so what do you think, David?
6: But, I, I mean, Max, you know, to what degree, like if you're talking about, you know, teaching non-specialists, to what degree do they understand what a feudal model looks like either, and you know, I, what degree is that a, a useful analogy? either. Um, you, in your sort of beginning to this little set part of the thing, talked about Game of Thrones, and we, I don't know, I use the Game of Thrones reference in class, mm-hmm. trying to teach my students. Um, you know, to what degree, you know, do we, are we um, bound to build, take pieces from real analogies and, and, you know, if if we're not being, you know, um, ontological, uh, uh, um, Uh, I don't know, Um, hard asses, Um, uh, to what degree can we take, draw analogies Uh, you know, where are the boundaries of of the analogies that we should use and in what contexts, right? Is like Game of Thrones only a useful analogy for um, teaching students to understand the way that the Maya worked or can we actually glean, you know, useful insights from contemplating these imagined worlds that, because, you know, we don't really know what the ancient Maya world looked like. We're imagining it through our creation of data and drawing on these little pieces, so what's to say that you need, need to necessarily be limited to um, um, uh, the, the um, comparisons that we that have, you know, observed realities.
2: That's great. Bless Kayla Wynn, you know, yeah. that's what she did. Yeah. And, and, and it was very effective. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
8: One of the things that I see with my students in my classes um, is an increasingly diverse student body. Okay. And what I've noticed just as I'm trying to sort of observe what my students' reactions are, I think a lot of students and increasing numbers of students of color are a little bit frustrated with not seeing themselves yeah. either in the discourse or represented, you know, in people talking to them about these ancient people. And one of the things I'm doing now in my class is talking a little bit more about indigenous archaeologies. What does that look like? Um, and on various scales, we, we also talked about gender and archeology span um, and sort of the his, a little bit of the history of it. And, and just again, you know, the background understanding may not, you know, they're learning, right? So um, we have to sort of maybe scale back, if we are talking to undergrads, how we build the kind of model that they can sink their teeth into and, and understand and then latch onto and then sort of, but part of what I see too is just seeing themselves or not um, and and trying to, you know, engage, and, and I think the students that I interact with are very interested in this idea of archaeologies. they're very interested in, well, what are archaeologists, are archaeologists talking to modern Maya people? Um, Are archaeologists, you know, building their ideas in absence of what Maya people or descendant communities think, want, have questions about how much of that happens, these students are asking me and I don't always know quite how to answer. I mean, I think there's a lot of projects that are are increasingly engaging in this way, but um, that's what my students want to know more about. They want to know more about how and to what degree are modern descendant community people being integrated into the discussion. What, if any, are their questions and how might those questions inform on our research questions? So if we think about comparisons, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if can we think about comparing our understanding with, with what understandings descendant communities have, and also that's built on ethnographic um, kinds of you know uh, relational analogy kinds of work. That's what I think the people that I, the young people that I'm working with, really want to know.
2: He's got a new book coming yeah, out that matter. is perfect.
8: I am tracking on that and I'd like to introduce it in my classes and I'd also I hate to have a Do you want to chime in?
5: Yeah. It's dead on what you're saying. Yeah, no, um, uh, I, I think that uh, it is like a lot of times, so the area that I work in, the, the people who are living there are not necessarily the people who were there during the classic period. Um, everyone was actually like there were still people in the Spaniards showed up they ended up moving them down to Retaluleo, like on the south coast of Guatemala, and then people moved in from the highlands in the early 20th century. But you still have, like, whether you want to, like, Ted Fisher refers to it and he's in the book as, like, cultural logics, but this idea that there are like certain like ways of understanding the world and thinking about problem solving that tend to be much stickier than any particular economic or social system. And you can yeah you can see the the, the local people with whom I'm actually interacting who are dealing with the same basic environment, the same basic problems and the same basic understanding of how the world works. and it creates a much more nuanced and uh, helpful and like... Uh, approach in some ways, always with caveats, but like with the end goal of trying to like take the Maya seriously in the present mm-hmm. and the past. Mm-hmm. I think that you know what you're both saying, but sort of going jumping
6: a little bit back to what Olivia was saying, like if we're not connecting, if we're connecting with our white students, but not the students with kind of descended community backgrounds. You know, maybe that speaks to not just the way we're presenting information, but the, what also the models that we're using to interpret it from. Right? Like you know, taking kind of like what like you're saying, this kind of deep cultural logic idea, and sort of saying like, well, if this cultural logic is is deeply ingrained like that, and the students who are descendants of that cultural logic don't get what we're trying to tell tell them. Um, you know, I think we can learn from the, those students um, in in the way that we sort of move forward in model building, um, as much or you know as much as as you know direct observations of kind of you know, of indigenous communities that still live in the same geographic regions as well. Um, and we can you really use those kinds of interactions to, to you know this is taking the ontological side thing seriously right uh, to try and re uh, uh, reconsider um, um, the way that we're modeling
2: the future past I think you know so make the classroom reflexive and not wet but to, to um, what what I'm, I'm impressed with is concern and what Brent is really great at in his yeah. book is seeing how they use it. How they use the past for power. Mm-hmm. We've lost the battle. They actually use the archaeology, and, yes. they, and it, it is used mm-hmm. as, a, as a very effective uh, element of resistance. I'm just synthesizing. I think, uh,
11: just want, uh, just a, a comment uh, uh, building on Olivia's comment, which I think is really great because that raises the, these questions of uh, representation and multivocality. Mm-hmm. But um, not only how your academic rhetoric, actual impact, or how you you, you um, are gonna uh, tell that story to your students, but also how that is gonna affect or resonate to the countries where you are working. I mean, and I say this as a Latino, I'm Peruvian, you know, being trained here in the US, but also I'm gonna go, go back to my country, I'm gonna try to build uh, scientific and academic rhetoric about the Moche people for Peruvians as well. So it's just to have the idea of not only how you would transmit those ideas to your students here, but also how that, that rhetoric is gonna impact, and as you said very insightfully, that is gonna be used as a political tool, political visibility, for political and social empowerment, uh, because um, this society, this pre society for we Latinos, are like a kind of you know romanticized, you know, this idea of the glorious past, the pre-Inca and the Inca past, the, this romanticized idea of the of the great Aztec Empire. It's really there in, in the national imaginary of of, yes. of Mexican and, and, and Peruvian. So it's just we how we uh, academicians and also how. Uh, uh, the academic rhetoric is also impacting and it's sometimes it's just have in mind that how careful we have to be when we build these rhetorics on how that's gonna impact I mean, your probably articles or papers are going to be translated. Maybe you don't know how and when, but there's going to be disseminated. Those ideas are going to be disseminated in the Spanish-speaking world as well, and that is going to have a tremendous impact of how the Maya people or other pre-Hispanic societies are start to be imagined, you know, by local people. But as you say, we have to avoid also the, the idea
2: of con- considering their sensitivities our definition of it. It leads to sympathetic ethnocentrism. On the warfare, I have found where I worked the Kekchi, they redid their definition. They like being warriors. They don't want to be koala bears, you know, like, <laughs> you yeah. have them be, and, and they like that. So you have to sort of, you know, be careful that your positive portrayal of them is not, Offensive tips. I'm totally, here. yeah, yeah.
3: So this is this is interesting, is it? You know, we're talking about comparative approaches in Maya studies, and and I, I'll admit, you know, I only thought about that period from 1000 BC to you know, say 1500 AD, and. Uh, well why not talk about comparative practices in terms of thinking how we do archaeology, relate to indigenous peoples how we incorporate those perspectives into our own practice of archaeology so say yeah okay well how do they do this in Peru in the, you know doing ethical archaeology in that sense, how do they do it? You know, in, in North America, elsewhere, uh, That's what sort it's of so compa- comparative in, in that sense too. So are we are we are we being good archaeologists in that sense?
1: And how do we do it with our collaborators uh, who are mixed in, uh, Guatemalan, Belizean? Um, uh, archaeologists uh, working with us and, and also how do we do it. Something that I've personally found really fun to do is, is with our uh, archaeologist workers. Um, we, we often call them our excavators but they're archaeologists yes. as, as much as we are the and they have questions They have, they, and it's really interesting to talk to them and working in a palace uh, with, 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 with with a large group of them is fascinating because they ask us questions but yes. then they also make their own uh, interpretations and listening to those are key to try to To getting insights that we don't have because uh, we don't relate to it in the same way that they do, so that's that's of course uh, something to think about. Um, Also, speaking of relating to people of different communities beyond uh, indigenous people, uh, reaching out to other uh, non-white groups, um, we think about kingship and we think about just. I'm, I'm gonna get take a step back here from politics and we're gonna. Included talking about economy, but uh, kingship, for example, we often think, and we think of kingdoms, and we think, and also the the word feudal and medieval has been used interchangeably, not the same thing uh, at all. Um, but um, also kingship, uh, a lot of the anthropological literature of kingship is is defined in Africa. Uh, a lot of of of. of, of um, Books, for example, Quigley has uh, his book on kingship, which is uh, well, not on king- the character of kingship, sorry, uh, that is uh, Declan Quigley. Very interesting, it provides a lot of interesting parallels. If we look at um, Beattie look, uh, studying the Bunyoro, which is a, a historical era, a, kingship, a kingdom. Uh, uh, and so in Central Africa, we, we get a lot of information about kings working out, that are outside. If we look at medieval um, southern India, we we, we, uh, we can garner lots of different interpretations of kingship that we can also extract. Um, and the, the interesting to think about is that um, medieval Europe was as different from the classic Maya world as it was, uh, as the classic Maya world was different from Central African Kingdom, or as was different from, from, from uh, Indian uh, kingdoms. And so we may have a certain insight on what medieval Europe was and maybe we can gather information, but maybe we should ask Indian archaeologists working in, uh, in, in India to try to create these models uh, a little more. Uh, rigorously, yeah. and we cannot become experts in all these other fields, sure. so that's when it becomes tricky.
10: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so, um, but also indigenous perspective are primary important and I we're feeling we need to incorporate it more and, and I look forward to to reading.
2: It's right. only half bullshit. <laughs> that's amazing. I was
5: shocked. So like and going back and I think one thing that's worth like uh, underlining which goes back into things that um, you two were talking about and that I actually do a lot with uh, my uh, with some of the like one of the advantages of the comparative research is not even necessarily like finding which pieces to use but also reading other uh, other cultures and like rethinking a lot of assumptions that we had that like the world has to be this way and even if like the stuff that you read has absolutely nothing to do with the final product the fact that you are uh, questioning the things that the baggage you're bringing to it um, is is Underappreciated.
2: But you know a lot of the insights, and I think we, you, you've cloned our approach and took it further, living with the community. I mean living with and as, as you direct the project, that you know a lot of your ideas, you, you're quoting you know the tour and all this kind of stuff, but that's good, that's good. But you're, you're really getting it from being imbued with stuff just, in just the context of the community. Just a quick comment
12: on, on all this, uh, on the <coughs> on the cultural logics on um, working with uh, modern communities in the in the same landscape. They know the landscape. They know they know where the arable land is. They know where the good soil is. They know where um, the water sources are. They know you know they, they know this landscape. You know they lived there their whole life, and so I think taking this kind of landscape approach. That, that knowledge is, is really important and it, it can help your interpretation when you're looking at um, at a site, is relation to where it's positioned, uh, if you're thinking of things like defense, if you're thinking of um, you know, things, even things like, um, I mean, problematic use of elite and non-elite and all that, but things that you think, you know, these people were positioned to take advantage of these resources, to take advantage of this landscape, these people might have been pushed aside to another area. So these are all things that, that I think um, really benefit our interpretation of the landscape. Mm-hmm. So I the challenges
1: of the best. Um, okay, uh, let us just because uh, I, I uh, I'll kick myself if we don't um, address that at all because it's another topic that's that I think is relevant is thinking about ancient Maya economy. Um, so uh, at the end, I know several people here are a lot more knowledgeable than I am about this. Wait, um, the truth has arrived on this. <laughs> um, There's but only the, twelve copies. But let's wait. Let's wait for until after to distribute those because it's gonna okay. be inter- very disruptive. It so be dis- it's well, gonna be so benighted to the end of it. Yeah. So uh, let's let's have let's let's hear. Let, let's hear a, a, a two-minute uh, introduction
2: to uh, challenges in, in economic interpretation for each my world from Arthur, and then we can all chat. It. I think we, we honestly, there is, a, there is a paradigm out there that comes on. So, Spurdo and all these people, we borrow them, and then we freeze them And we don't know that there's a whole field where they continue to develop it. And I just, they pulled me in working with strategic management. They have a whole series of concepts that are tremendously useful, and their logic is clean. I have a lot of complaints about that, because ours isn't, because they're in a discipline that is quantifiable with some of their data. And then when they look at non-Western societies and early societies, it's not quantifiable, but they keep the logical structure of that. And I just found, I was a big surprise, how tremendously useful it is to just have a whole new paradigm. Just startle, because all the stuff that we use, honestly, this is the thing in my archaeology and anthropology too, we take these concepts from Bourdieu and Marx and Foucault, and then they're ours.
0: And those are okay to use,
2: even though they're coming from capitalist analysis. But then we freeze them, and we think that's where it's in. And in, in, in sociology, a lot of it's criminology. But there is a theoretical branch of it that's merged with business and management studies. I just can't tell you how rich the literature is. And things like cultural embeddedness legitimation of things that we think they're not. They know our literature. We don't know theirs. And it's very I mean, you know, ninety percent of these management schools are you know teaching people how to steal. But there's still there's ten percent that is it. highly intellectual in the in the better programs and the sociology programs. And I just think honestly we should just like look at that stuff and say, My God, these people have got all this stuff. Now they're awed by what we have. Because you know we have these lots and in, 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 in Indians and things. And also we have of course the long durée, that really long durée. So we have a lot to tell them too, but I mean I, I'm just shifting paradigms. Okay. So besides
1: shifting the entire paradigm, <laughs> uh, what, what, uh, what kind of approaches do people around here think are useful to understanding and critically understanding the
10: um,
1: economy in the my world?
10: So I can actually just comment on what Arthur said. Um, I think it's important for us to think, going back to what David was actually talking about earlier, about where we get our comparisons with the uh, Game of Thrones and now other things mm-hmm. is no, sure. We draw on these other uh, ideas and theories from economics and other disciplines because that's what we know. We can't um we can't understand something to build a model about an economic system that we have no understanding of. So how can we sort of draw from other things to create a broader understanding of what economic systems that aren't similar to
2: ours might look like? Mm -hmm. So I think that's- Don't draw, collaborate. (laughs) Collaborate, Um, it's too too much to draw. And and it's so much more productive. It keeps both sides clean. And you don't have to go through a literature that you can't read, you know, in another way. It's just so much better. Just collaborate. Yeah, I mean, this is just
10: my advice. I wanted to bring it back to the idea of cultural logics that you guys had also been discussing is how can we sort of bring in some of those ideas into thinking about economic systems. Um, and I teach about economies often, and I try and get my students to consider things like the social relationships that are present in these past economic activities that, so, you know, we can go online and buy whatever we want without talking to another human, right? But those aren't the ways that these things would have happened in the past. So I think it's really important that we have to consider that we might, not have a good understanding of how things in the past may have worked. That being said, um, <laughs> I do use comparative approaches when I'm thinking about economies, um, and since they're coming from a uh, lithics perspective. Uh, I do tend to draw on perhaps other comparisons that people wouldn't make because I'm thinking about it in terms of uh, the ways in which people think about making and the constraints upon making tools. So I'm thinking about basically sedentary societies. So when I start to think about comparative approaches to how people make lithics and how that's integrated into the economy, I start with people who other people who are sedentary, which I think is perhaps a broader approach than some people who are more interested in more specific aspects of economic activity
1: right which one are these societies that you use
6: no.
10: i mean i've gone sort of all over the place um i've currently been thinking a lot about uh, the similarities between the dichotomization between formal and informal tool production in the maya area where we have both bifaces and blades which are produced as sort of formal tools probably by specialists versus informal tools, which are produced generally in most households. And that's something that we see cross-culturally in sedentary societies, um, particularly I've been thinking about it in comparison with um, early uh, metallurgy societies, um, because we see the same thing at that time. We get specialists who are making things like stainless for out of stone, but also have this generalized reduction activity. So what are the similarities of the ways that those production activities are structured that we can think of?
3: So this is in, in considering economy. I I think you're right in that comparative studies kind of. Open up something beyond just pure, you are thinking purely about the materials, right? Um, and one, one theoretical trend, you know, that, that I think has been really popular in my studies the last 10, 15 years is that idea of inalienable possessions, mm-hmm. inalienability, which is straight up comparative, borrowed from studies of Melanesian societies, right? And all of a sudden, this gears us toward thinking about the nature of Maya materiality, the role of objects and their circulation, their value, and, and we're not just thinking of, oh, okay, exchange of prestige goods, and uh, how you know, Maya kings are using that to, to hold on to power or whatever. Instead, it's, it's, it's becoming a lot more complicated. We start thinking about the biographies and life histories of objects. Uh, and, and, and that's not even saying that. You, you have to use that same exact model of, say, inalienability that's developed for for those societies. Instead we can at least take the kernel, go into what Arthur I think is saying about just taking that one piece and all of a sudden we've got a whole new way of talking about Maya economy just beyond you know, material goods
2: and their exchange. You know, we're talking so about that economy. concept again, it hasn't died. They've carried further on the cultural but bio- inalienability is a state, the cultural biography continues, that the concept of that, it is inalienable in the material, is a myth. It, it, it just continues, you know, selling the family jewels. Uh, David's stuff that everybody keeps ignoring uh, about the caches with him and Riley. The jade, the jade caches is a stored capital. We think, oh, it's a cache, it's ritual. They'd be stupid not to know that's there, and that in, in times of trouble, they can take it, they can rework it into artifacts, and they can do patronage, so the, this is something called you you and all those guys at Poor Rico, they've continued that. And so, yeah. is, a, is is a matter of degree,
4: mm-hmm. and it keeps changing. And I think the more that we can utilize concepts like in, inalienability that that take us across to cross over what we in a, in a western frame think of as in, in into a different subfield. So I think that John Clark wrote an article it was probably ten years ago or, or something in which he really questions the use of the term economy. and um, in, in in our in the western framing of things, we have one thing called economy, one thing called um, political and everything religious. religious. Um, and, and then we think, okay, if it's about production and consumption, that's economy. And so we're gonna analyze it in that way. And we, we do internalize a lot of the basic principles of capitalism into many of our economic analyses, and, and I've written about this before. And so I think whenever we can use these concepts that force us to bridge um, uh, build a bridge across what we in our the way we've been trained to think in our cultural logic, you know, is bridging into it a whole different realm, like the political realm or the religious realm, you know. Then we perhaps are getting closer to the kind of integrated kind of, um, you know, framing that might have occurred in the past when this kind of this very artificial separation of things that. In our world today, was really not that reality at all.
8: Severin Falls. Go ahead, Olivia. It just think, reminds me of a book by Severin Falls called The Archaeology of Doings. Duming. Yeah. And it's really fascinating, kind of dealing with the way we might impose a term like religion onto a sort of spiritual characterizing that kind of understanding. And really, there's no conceptual term among Puebloan societies that specifically categorizes religion, and it's really just doings, and it's a really insightful way to re-understand how we categorize um, these kinds of domains of of knowledge about society and their functioning, and again, take, take a very different cultural logic approach to Insightful and probably better and
7: closer understanding of, of the processes. Um, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna go off what you said that one of the problems about using uh, modern economic models uh, that economists use is that there is the base assumption that uh, economics is functioning on a uh, atomized contemporary um, uh, landscape where you have the basic economic unit is the individual. Uh, yet if you start looking at Maya ethnographies uh, and, and looking at them, they, they don't operate with the with the individual as the basic economic unit. It's the family, it's the extended family or the lineage or whatever you want to call it. And it's collectively owning and holding uh, possessions. Um, so when we start looking at, at trying to, to reconstruct uh, ancient economies in the Maya world, um, when we're looking at, at production, distribution, and consumption, uh, it's, people are acting for the benefit not of themselves, but for their social unit. This is a completely bland, non-judgmental term, social unit. Uh, whether it be the extended family or the lineage or whatever, and this is a very, very kind of non-Western approach uh, to studying the, the, the economic structure that might have existed. How would, uh, how would a social unit approach to uh, a marketplace work? How would a social unit uh, approach to, you gotta go back to Bohannon, gotta to go to Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, have to see how individuals get sent to make purchases for the group. Um, or um, you will have representatives of the group will go to make purchases. And it's not just marketplaces, it could be the exchange of prestige objects, it could be uh, base autarky, you know, what can this unit produce so that it doesn't need uh, to access a marketplace that they're lo- largely locked out of because they might be too poor anyway. Um, Damien and I have been, have been excavating in a really, really sort of downscale group uh, just outside of the site core. and. Uh, you know, looking at a lot of their artifacts, these people were really self-sufficient, and these people were really poor. Uh, if I could use that term, um, and they are basically trying to produce everything they can internally, um, or at least that's what that's what it looks to me at this stage. They're also exporting shell. Yeah, and then they're exporting <laughs> shell. Uh, Treasure mountains, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we have to look at that group as a single economic unit, and it's not these individuals operating on the landscape. You call it a corporate group. I want to call it a community. I mean, God. but of course, I, I will never define the term because I want to keep it as vague as possible.
5: <laughs> so, one of like I was dragged into economics, kicking and screaming, because. I did ritual, I was a cave guy, and then I ended up like ending up like all of my cave stuff uh, were along a major trade route, and now I am digging a massive salt production site, um, which I didn't mean to. Uh, which, so like even issues of like scale of production, I mean, this is, as Keith points out, a mountain of salt. And kind of thinking about how people ended up making the salt, what they did with it. How it's embedded. I can't just look at it from like an economic perspective because it's not just, production isn't just A plus B equals C. There are so many different rituals that were involved in the production of goods which continue. Like One of the problems with a bunch of development in the Kaichi world is that the development agencies come in and teach people how to plant crops, but they don't tell them the songs and prayers that they need in order to actually like make sure that they grow and thrive. But with the, like um, the only evidence I have, I know that there was self-production at the time of the Spanish conquest and after the city itself collapsed, the only evidence that I have of self-production is actually a ritual cave with a stage that was built in 1400 AD Uh, where people were performing ceremonies right in front of the salt dome in order to ask permission. When we talk about like the production of different basic commodities, we don't think about like all the other investments and all the other costs that go into producing it beyond just like the fabrication of tools.
1: Would anyone want to take uh, two minutes to sort of close the topic
2: of economy? Ideologists like, say, Haberde Conquen, being drawn into economics is a really—it turns out to be a good way. I mean, seriously, Conquen, Takeshi, I gave a bunch of talks at the beginning, and he said, "I thought you didn't believe in economics (laughs) because I was an ideology person." He got dragged into economics, and it gives you—I think it gives you a good—a
7: good perspective. And the last thing I would like to say about economics and. I think Marilyn Masson's volume is about to come out. Is that you have, you can have multiple economic systems functioning all simultaneously, mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind unlike of, now. What? Uh, uh, so, so kind of
1: dissimilar to what we live in now. We have the great equalizer. Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe.
7: I maybe. maybe.
2: Not in my head. Right now, <laughs> now we're <still> our <laughs> we well, I mean, in my head, like, even the marketplace idea, what I see them living in the, the little town is that market day is more important. Because mm-hmm. you were talking about the different you know, little, there's a big market day, but actually everybody's popping up little markets all, all over the place and, and in the marketplace, which is controlled, mm-hmm. as it might be with the Mojave. Um, there's a certain amount of stuff going, on, but I bet you it's a, it's 50 percent of what's going on. Okay.
1: Cool. Well, uh, this brings us to, to the end of the session. I uh, think uh, we'll, uh, thank you very much for everyone. I think we went in all kinds of different ways. Great. Uh, way and I'm not sure we know where we're going. <laughs> I think I think one thing we, we, we were really aware of is we have to be mindful uh, of where we're going and maybe to try to be a little more rigorous about it um, and maybe even take uh, 500 words about words, 8,000 8, word limit in our articles to, uh, to try to define a bit better how. Uh, is this going to be a book? No. No, no, I'm just just a general practice when writing articles.
2: Um, (laughs) I already have one. (laughs) I
8: just wanted to say thank you, Max, um, for this great idea. This is the first time I've ever been in an arrangement like this, and I think it was way more productive and interesting than... The standard format, not to put the standard format under the bus, but um, this was really great. And I thank you for bringing it together um, and getting oh, us started. You. And yeah, you know, great. we
4: might be more strategic and think about building yeah, off of this. More. And, uh-huh. and, and you're, uh, as a young archaeologist, going down the road. So
1: we will be doing, uh, as I've been saying, we'll be doing a, a special edition of the Archaeological Record uh, for the essays, which very short articles that we've been invited to do, up to three, three to five, uh, so five ma- as a maximum. We can collaborate on some, some people can spearhead them, please just email me to uh, just respond to the original request that I did to see who was interested in writing uh, pieces. We already have, uh, I have two or three people that might be interested, Can but, I ask yes? a
8: quick question about that specifically? Yeah. Um, you had already categories, economy, politics. Those were just guidelines. It doesn't Could we have- do something shaped around like... Um, bringing synthesizing for audience, multiple audiences. One hundred percent.
1: Yeah, I don't know that these were just broad uh, strokes. And I was hoping that this would shape into something okay. different. And so uh, yeah, I uh, I, I, know I was
2: going to say, as a young archaeologist, your concern with how to move forward is is great because that is the way to go. You need framework, you need structure, you need to worry about that. And I think that's you know where the ideas are going to come from if you're thinking that way. Thank you for thinking of me. <laughs> even so and, and uh, la- last but not least uh, we,
1: we have gifts um, uh, speaking of the economy from Arthur uh, oh
2: yes <laughs> well a we, he's
8: the, 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 the <laughs>
2: aA demarest and uh, this is very egotistical but I am you know a a at gmail.com just write me and I will send you the the uh, well, now twelve page, single page. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna everybody. get handouts. Yeah, the handouts are for us. the handouts. There's not enough <laughs> well, well, of okay. them. well, all right. We're, we're giving to us to the yeah. Davids or something okay. 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 like we'll, Thank you very much. Page. Missing four pages. Thank
8: you, Max. Okay. Thanks, Max.
2: Be in
1: touch. It's too early to go to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs>
0: Cool, right? I've never heard any presentation at really uh, any conference that sounded like a podcast in real life. So once again, thanks to Max and all the other panelists for letting Go Dig a Hole be a part of this and bring it to a wider audience. And thanks again to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep bringing things to wider audiences. You can join our great supporters at patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. And uh, every supporter gets a thank you note and a cool Go Dig a Hole sticker. So uh, go do that now and find Go Dig a Hole on any social media at Go Dig a Hole. And thanks again to Louisville post-punk band Invaders for letting us use their song, Dig a Hole.